Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Susan Follett, the author of The Fog Machine, a novel commemorating the Freedom Summer of 1964. The novel traces the crisscrossing lives of three young people from 1954 to 1970. C.J. Evans is a young black woman from Mississippi. The lessons instilled in her by her parents keep her firmly in her place even after she moves to the North. Zach Bernstein, a student at the University of Chicago, is eager to fight for justice, but he soon discovers that overcoming C.J.'s distrust is almost as difficult as changing the world. And Joan Barnes, a seven-year-old in Poplar Springs, Mississippi, is a Catholic and a Northerner. She doesn't quite fit the status quo either. The novel opens with Joan. April 1959, Unexpected Directions The black wrought iron table called out to her as if it held a sign. Reserved for Joan Olivia Barnes. It was the best table in King's Drugs, the one that let you see everyone. As she skipped across the linoleum, her petticoat billowed out the skirt of her white eyelet dress like a cloud. May I, mademoiselle, said her dad. She giggled as he held one of the heartback chairs out for her, just as he had for her mom, scooted her up to the table and wandered off to chat with the druggist. She swung her legs, careful not to scuff her new patent leather Mary Janes. Her mom peeled off her gloves one finger at a time and set them on her purse. Studiously, Joan did the same. Now what? We'll go out after Mass to celebrate, her mom had said, after both grandmothers sent cards with money for Joan's first communion. Any place you want. Just the three of us. Her mom agreed. CJ was called to take care of Joan's little brother. She was at their house right now, missing her Sunday services, but Joan's mom said that was okay for Baptists. Well, here they were, right where Joan asked to be. But where were the other kids? No one else was in the store. Unless you counted Howdy Doody on the Colgate display, waving just like he did on the show, the Negro sweeping the floor nearby, and, of course, Mr. King. Joan stood lower in her chair. She poked her little fingers through one hole, then another in her skirt. Her mom chatted about the morning at St. Stephen's, whose communion dress she liked the best, and how proud and tall Joan had stood, waiting her turn to receive the host. But Joan was thinking about Carol Gleason. Carol was so lucky, celebrating at this very minute with more relatives than any one person ought to have. She almost hated Carol, even though Carol was her best friend. And what about every other first grader at St. Stephen's Academy? celebrating with dozens of cousins, aunts, and uncles, grandmas, and grandpas, no doubt. Grandma Olivia lived in Wisconsin, and Grandma Joan in Illinois, too far away to come for Joan's big day. Good thing, too. If her friends heard her grandmother's talk, they'd be thinking Joan was a Yankee for sure. And now, please join me in welcoming Susan Follett. Hi, Susan. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you, Carolyn, for your interest in my work. Uh, before we start, I should mention that uh, even though this interview won't post until next week, uh, we're talking on the 50th anniversary, 
not of the beginning of the march from Selma to Montgomery, but of the day that the marchers succeeded on crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge to continue their march, uh, which seems very apropos given your character's interest in, and in some cases opposition to, voting rights. Yes, indeed. Uh, you live in Minnesota, according to your website, but you grew up in Meridian, Mississippi, or very close to it, which is one of the scenes in your novel. Uh, before we get into the details of the novel itself, please tell us about you. Uh, what is your history, and how did you come to write fiction? Okay, well, that's right. I now live in a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota, but I grew up in Mississippi. And my having lived in both Mississippi and Minnesota has directly influenced my becoming a writer and beginning the journey that yielded the fog machine. My parents moved to Mississippi when I was just a few months old and then to Meridian when I was about three. And most of my years in Meridian were spent in a house on 49th Avenue. It was near the city park where the first African-American stepped into the city pool in 1969 on the very day that the first man walked on the moon. And there was a break in that road a couple of blocks over from my house, and it picked up again maybe five blocks away. And today, the part of 49th Avenue that's on the other side of that break has been renamed James Cheney Drive after one of the three civil rights workers who were murdered outside Meridian at the outset of Freedom Summer. And the divide in that road is is really one of many divides in my hometown at that time. There were divides that I knew about. I was Catholic, and most everyone I knew was Baptist. My parents were from the North, and all my friends had families with really deep Mississippi roots. My junior high school was on the other side of town, not the side where some of my wealthier Catholic friends lived. And the few black folks that I knew worked for my family as maid or managing farmland that we owned in another county. And there were also divides, though, that I did not know about. Clear across town was the south side with trailer parks and people much less well-off than my very middle-class family. Where good people grew up, like a high school friend who went on to become a doctor, and where others grew up, like those who would become involved in the murders of James Cheney, Nikki Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman. And there were so many people that I did not know about. Somewhere in between those divides, there were people we now call Freedom Summer veterans, young people who were risking their lives alongside Meridian's black citizens. My high school graduating class was the first under federally mandated desegregation which came as we were as we began our final semester of senior year. But this merger of formerly all black Meridian High or all excuse me, all white Meridian High and the formerly all black Harris High really had little effect on the status quo since the way they handled this was to 
pick up classes intact and move them from one campus to another. And there was little interaction between black and white students, although we did have common gym classes, eat in the same cafeteria, and participate together on sports teams. I went on to college at Mississippi State University where I got a master's degree in computer science, which led to my taking a job with a major computer company here in Minnesota. And my Minnesota experience from that point on really jump-started a couple of significant changes that pushed me farther along the path toward becoming a writer. And the first such change really happened as a direct result of being recruited to Minnesota along with 29 other Mississippi State graduates, three of whom were black. And though these black students had been in some of my computer classes, I hadn't associated with them but one happened to move into the same apartment complex I did, and we became close friends. And all 30 of us, though, really interacted and socialized almost as if we always had. And what changed for us was that we suddenly had something in common. We were a 1,000 miles from home, freezing our butts off, and really, truly wondering why we'd come. And that made us all outsiders together. And the second change was initiated by a natural disaster. In 1984, a tornado struck my suburban Minnesota neighborhood. And my roof was literally and figuratively ripped from my house that night. Staying with a friend and unable to sleep, I watched TV into the early morning hours. And I saw something that I may never have seen otherwise a documentary about the 1965 march from Selma to Montgomery. I watched, riveted, as unfamiliar history unfolded. This was one of the most famous and brutal protests of the American Civil Rights Movement, and it took place scarcely 100 miles from my hometown Meridian, yet 19 years later, I knew nothing about it. Um, after those two changes, though, really nothing much else changed for years. But the nagging feeling that was sparked by watching that documentary would resurface every now and then. And I began to frame the enigma in the form of two questions. Why didn't I know the history of my childhood? And what might be different if I had? So, um, how did, why did you decide to tell this story? The Fog Machine is your first novel, so why did you decide to tell this story as a novel? Well, I really didn't set out to write a novel or even to tell a story, but rather to answer those two questions. Why didn't I know the history of my childhood and what might be different if I had? And I started my research with people in Mississippi who'd lived the history with heightened awareness. But I soon branched out wanting to learn how life and attitudes in the 60s in other parts of the U.S. compared to those in Mississippi. And what I started to see is that we are all prejudiced. And to realize that what I really wanted to explore was 
what makes human beings prejudiced and what enables us to change. And ultimately, I realized that I had stories from so many people that could be knit together into a history of the times and told through people's relationships. And that I had learned so much of the history of my childhood and even why it was unfamiliar to me, but I still couldn't answer what might have been different had I been more aware. And that's where the power of fiction really took hold of me with its potential for what ifs and imagining. And my characters, C.J. Evans, Joan Barnes, and Zach Bernstein emerged and helped me imagine. But this was a slow and painful process. I was trained as a scientist, not a writer, and certainly not as a writer of fiction. And so along the way, I worked with a writing coach through the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis and with an editor. And I shared versions of my manuscript with book groups around the country, and I took some really hard knocks feedback and revised and rewrote extensively. But the, the biggest turning point came in 2012 as the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer drew nearer. And for some time, I'd, I'd seen Freedom Summer as the pivotal element of my story, but it was then just a single chapter midway in the manuscript, and I decided to give it its due place in the novel. So through the greatest of fortunes, I connected with a woman named Gail Falk, who taught in the Meridian Freedom School in 1964. And for some reason, despite her initial criticism of what I'd written about Freedom Summer, she chose to work with me. She became a mentor, not just about the history, but because she was willing to let me bounce scenarios off her. She shared documents that she'd saved from her work in Meridian, and my novel was transformed by working with her. Um, that's great. Hey, you answered the question that I hadn't quite gotten around to, which was how you made it work, which is uh, excellent, too. Um, as I mentioned in my introduction, The Fog Machine opens with Joan Barnes, uh, whom you just mentioned. Uh, tell us about Joan, and especially what it is about Joan that makes her... First Communion, the, the ideal entry into your story, because it's considerably before Freedom Summer. Yes. Okay, well, Joan is the first child of parents who moved to Mississippi from the north, Yankees, as uh, Mississippians would call them. And as such, the Barnes family has no local relatives. And being Catholic really increases their sense of isolation among the longtime Mississippians who are predominantly Baptist. So Joan feels different, particularly because she doesn't have this extended family nearby, and she's driven by a need to belong. Um, First Communion is a rite of passage for Catholics. It's an initiation into a group whose members share values and culture. Confirmation, which typically occurs several years later, obligates a Catholic more fully to spread and defend their faith by their words and actions, 
but there's an innocence associated with First Communion with the, the white dresses and veils that little girls typically wear. And in the drugstore where this first scene is set, Joan is keenly aware that it's just her and her parents, while her friends are having bigger celebrations with lots of family around. And she reacts to the daughter of the Negro man who works in the drugstore with curiosity and interest without judgment. Um, until, that is, something happens that causes her to choose sides and to try to align herself in order to belong. So this incident, just like John's First Communion, is a point of passage and an initiation into the mores of the time and place in which she lives and the resulting choices that are going to be presented to her as she grows up. So it's the first look into what makes us prejudiced. Yeah, it's of all the characters in the book, it's tempting to see Joan's experiences growing up as the closest to your own. But is that fair? Um, or do you, because in the process of writing a novel, I mean, people think that, that writers put characters that they know into their books. And of course, it's true that you put little pieces of characters because you're observing life. But at least for me, no character has ever been exactly like the person I know. And I assume that you have transformed her in some way, um, maybe in many ways, maybe completely, uh, in order to tell your story. Well, the most direct parallel between John's experiences and mine, and, and actually between CJ's and the woman who inspired her character, is the book's timeline. I set out to explore a particular time and a place and a set of reactions to those. And this is the height of the American Civil Rights Movement, which is often framed by the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954 and the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968. So John is... 12 years younger than CJ, which is the same age difference as between me and the woman who inspired CJ's character. And Joan experiences life milestones such as her first communion and her high school graduation at the same time relative to history that I did. My own experience growing up Catholic in a predominantly Baptist Southern state as the child of Yankee parents without those family roots that my friends had with their great-great-grandparents, uh, all being Mississippians, cast me as something of an outsider. And my own outsider experience allowed me to both imbue Joan's character with those feelings and to better bridge to CJ's feelings as a black person living under Jim Crow. It's perhaps most difficult, I think, to create a distinct character based in significant ways upon oneself, to move beyond one's own truth, however understood or misunderstood that may be, to the imagined truth of the story. And I chose to handle this challenge by putting Joan into situations that I had never faced. 
giving her opportunities to learn and change at a younger age than I did. And notably, she experiences the Meridian Freedom School when her dad, who's a doctor unlike mine, decides that she will accompany him on his visits as a volunteer with the Medical Committee for Human Rights, which was a group of American physicians organized in 1964 to provide medical support for the civil rights workers. So there's imagery from my growing up experience, details such as the magic line in Joan's driveway, but I consider Joan to be luckier than I was in that she is presented with opportunities for change sooner in life. I agree that it's easier to write people who are not just like yourself, actually. I mean, it's it's harder to separate yourself from the characters who resemble you, although, of course, really, the characters are all our creations, so we they, they express elements of ourselves, I think. Yeah. Um, so talk, let's, you've talked about CJ a little bit. Um, CJ is, in some ways, very different from you. You say she's based on a, another person, um, Tell us about her and where she is at the beginning of the story and what are the challenges that she faces. Well, CJ's story is really the heart of The Fog Machine. And as I've said, I wrote this novel to examine and reimagine the times. And and a huge piece of that examination involved trying to understand what it was like to live under Jim Crow as a black person. And I'd assumed that I knew the black woman who worked for our family when I was very young, which is an assumption born out of my fondness for her. But, of course, how could I possibly have known her when I I wasn't even aware of Jim Crow or the history we were living through, and which created separate worlds that intersected when she came to work at our house. And... The character, CJ, began with a one-hour interview I did of this woman who cared for me as a toddler. She left Meridian to work as a live-in domestic in Chicago for several years before ultimately returning home. And this interview presented clues about all that I didn't know and sent me off on more research. And it kind of gave me hooks upon which to ultimately hang pictures and weave a story. So uh, at her core, CJ remains true throughout the book to who she is at the start. She has people smarts more than book smarts and never really sees the value of an education for herself, but is a master at reading and managing people, even at a young age. She loves her family almost compulsively and is driven by the need to keep herself and them safe. And her approach to staying safe calls for following the rules and accepting the status quo, as she's been taught by her parents, her teachers, and her minister. And... This approach works fairly well until she leaves Mississippi, opening herself up to new rules that are far more subtle than Jim Crow, but also to new ideas and decisions. 
Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about why she decides to leave, despite her love for her family, and or perhaps because of her love for her family, and what happens to her when she goes to Chicago initially? It's because, she, as you say, it's very subtle. She encounters other forms of prejudice um, that are less physically threatening, and yet, in some ways, they're they're just as demeaning. Yes. Well, CJ's best friend May brings up the idea of going to Chicago because. May's cousin Alinda is there doing live-in domestic work. And Alinda has been placed by an agency that matches southern girls with northern families. And this is something that went on during the late 1950s and, and early 1960s. The pay, which was $30 a week, is too low to entice most northern girls, but it's so much more than the 20 cents an hour that CJ can make in Mississippi. But still, CJ's mother is adamant that she will graduate from high school. And CJ can scarcely comprehend the notion of leaving her family. But her employers really set in motion a chain of events, of events that eventually change her decision. Reverend Thornhart has been verbally abusive since the first day she went to work for him. Even worse, CJ works for the local Klan leader, Buddy Corrigan. The Klan has already tested her, and she thinks she's passed, but she can't be certain. Mrs. Corrigan is harassing her because she's convinced her husband is doing more than driving CJ home from work after the meetings. So as things come to a head, CJ sends in her application to the program. And when she's accepted, she wants to back out, but her mother tells her she's made a commitment. And so CJ becomes part of the Great Migration and is one of some 6 million African Americans to leave their homes in the South and move north and west in the first half of the 20th century. And her release on her days off, um, uh, which are only one a week at first, she's living in this house where she's a, a, a live-in maid for, and where she works six days a week, uh, is to flee to the south side of Chicago and where she shares an apartment with May and other girls like herself. And uh, there's great food, I have to tell you. I was <laughs> hungry half the time I was reading this book because of the wonderful descriptions. Um, but... Um, uh, life on the South Side in the late 50s and early 60s is in some ways quite different from anything that CJ has encountered so far, either in Mississippi or in uh, the white community, Skokie, where she lives in Chicago. So um, tell us about what she experiences and what she learns. I think you have a passage that you're going to read for us. Yes. Um, there's one paragraph from Chapter 9 that refers to two of the five girls who share apartment number 10 with CJ, and it refers to the Powell family, who's the first of her three Chicago employers, and I think it illustrates how CJ feels about the South Side. For Sissy and Emily, the South Side felt like home. They loved it there, thought it grand, yet it struck her as cruel that such a place could exist in the same city as the house where she expected to spend nearly every day of the coming year. In the south side, every face was black, 
and it seems possible to do or buy anything. In the palace house, she was sometimes startled to see her face in the mirror. So white was everything around her that she could almost forget she wasn't white too. But in her uniform, like Cinderella in her rags, she could never forget she did not belong. Now, Flo is the roommate who challenges CJ's acceptance of the status quo, and Flo's civil rights talk, as CJ calls it, frightens CJ. She worries about harm coming to her friend, and she even uh, questions Flo's motives at times. So one of the really important lessons that CJ learns is what really drives Flo's interest in civil rights. Yeah, tell us just a little bit about Flo as a character. Well, um, Flo comes from Alabama, and it's it's hard to talk to, about her too much because she has a secret, which I don't want to reveal. But um, yeah, don't tell us that. Just tell us a little bit about yeah. her personality. Yes. Well, so something that has happened in her background has made her react differently to. Um, discrimination and prejudice than CJ does. And she's curious. She's just far more curious about um, what's going on with the civil rights movement. Um, she becomes more interested in talking to Zach sooner than CJ does because Zach's a college boy and he's studying some of these things. But at the same time, Flo and CJ are very much alike. They, they could be sisters. Um, they, they actually look alike. They're pretty much, this, they wear the exact same dress size. Their skin is the same color. They, they like to do the same things. They enjoy sitting around the apartment or just going out to get something to eat and listening to the radio and simple things and shopping and Her personality is very much like CJ's, but she's in this direct opposition relative to joining or not joining the the movement. And as you mentioned, this is also where CJ meets Zach. Um, So tell us a little bit about Zach Bernstein. Who is he and how does he come to be a college student in Chicago? Okay, well, he's from New York, and um, he... First is an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago and then eventually becomes a law student. He lives in the same brownstone that CJ and her roommate spend time in on their day off on weekends. He loves jazz. He plays the piano by ear. He's the son of a Jewish father and a Christian mother. And his father has endured harassment and discrimination in his construction work, and his grandmother lost her brother in a German concentration camp. As a practicing Jew, Zach is deeply committed to Sadaka, justice and righteousness. And CJ is initially drawn to Zach by her simple desire to talk with a white boy something that she was unable to really do with Alan Thornhart in Mississippi, the son of her employer, Reverend Thornhart. But she's put off also by Zach's civil rights talk, just as she is by Flo's. 
she begins to see him differently, though, from the moment that he plays the piano for her. And over time, he wins her over, and he becomes the one she wants to talk with about the important moments of her life. She feels understood by him, and she sees commonality in their love of family and the kinds of harassment and discrimination they've endured because of who they are. Now, Zach, on the other hand, falls for CJ immediately. He sees her as smart, what he calls common sense, pragmatism, and people skills, and thinks she's beautiful inside and out and fun to be with. And what they have to overcome to be together, the challenge that they have to work through, is actually deeper than the colors of their skin. CJ has a lifetime of learned behavior for staying safe by staying in her place. And Zach has a really somewhat naive belief in the power of love to overcome all obstacles. So it's their experience during Freedom Summer in Meridian that will really test them both. And I'd like to read part of the last scene of Chapter 12 that shows CJ and Zach spending time together and illustrates some of the disparity in their backgrounds that is a play in their relationship? Uh, Yes, please, go ahead. Okay. Sprawled before them, Jackson Park's wooded island held every tree imaginable. They glimmered honey gold and scarlet in the sun. But from the moment CJ spotted the ancient burrow, she ignored the rest. Acorns crunched beneath her feet as she ran. She stuffed a handful in her pocket before stepping onto the branch that reached out to the ground like a friendly hand. She pulled herself up into its arms with practiced ease and looked down, just as she had from her favorite tree on the Wilson farm, where, sheltered in in the tangle of branches and leaves, she felt less afraid. Winting from beneath the visor of his Yankees cap, Zach held up his hands to make a sort of viewfinder. I wish I had a camera, he said. If she had a picture of Zach, where would she keep it? Not even the girls of number 10, who'd adopted Zach as one of their own, would understand. She gathered images, dark curls springing from beneath the cap, achingly blue eyes peering up at her the remnants of a tan where his neck and forearms peeked from beneath his sweatshirt, dimples like two tiny suns brightening his smile. CJ blinked, snapping them all at once to store in her mind. She watched, surprised, as the dimples disappeared. Figuring that sitting in a tree could cure almost any bad feeling, she motioned, come on up. Oh, no, he shook his head, that's okay. You scared of heights? No, no, I'm not. Please, you can feel Mississippi up here. The only way you'll probably ever know it, she thought. Zach moved toward the tree's friendly hand. It was the way he gripped the branch overhead that made her realize he must have had precious few trees to climb growing up in New York City. That's right, step there to the left, she coached. She guided him until he reached the branch opposite hers and perched there. Even then, he was silent. Overhead, two squirrels chattered and chased each other. 
You worried the season will end without Maris breaking the record? It's just time. He sounded tired. Babe Ruth set the record of 60 home runs in 1927. My pop was just a boy when he saw him play. Seems like not much has changed since then. CJ thought of her daddy, how they would come in from playing with the rag ball to stand before the curio cabinet, awestruck by the beauty of the real baseball inside and the signature scrawled across it. He ever catch a ball, your pop? Not that I know of. Charlie and I sure knew about the one daddy caught, 1938, while he was in the Army. Who'd he watch? You probably never heard of them, the New Orleans Black Pelicans. He caught it off Johnny Besant. I don't know the Pelicans, but Pop taught me about the legends of the Negro Leagues. He saw some of them when the championships were in Yankee Stadium. Wonder why he wanted to go to those games. More exciting, he said. Stolen bases, everything faster. CJ pulled an acorn from her pocket. She felt it in her hand like the rag ball and pitched it at the old log. It hit square on. Cool Papa Bell, fastest man ever to play pro baseball, Zach said. Satchel Page, maybe the best pitcher ever lived. And Oscar Charleston, they called him the Black Tie Cod. Seems kind of insulting being called the Black Somebody. She threw another acorn and another. Both hit their mark. Zach whistled. I think it was kind of a measurement, comparing the best to the best. They called Josh Gibson the Black Bay Bruce. He hit 84 home runs in 1936, and some say he was the only man to hit a ball out of Yankee Stadium. And Acorn finally fell short of the log. That's what I mean, though. He scowled again, about not much changing since Bay Bruce. My pop always said Gibson should have been up against him. Johnny Besant wasn't well-known like those you've named, but my daddy always said, you got to catch the ball that's thrown to you, not be pining after some other one. Look at the Negro players all over the white teams now. One of them will do it. Not just baseball, CJ. That's where you're wrong, Zach. I think everything has changed. I'm in Chicago, up a tree with you, talking about what a sight it would have been, Gibson and Ruth chasing the home run record like your Maris and Mantle. Uh, yes, and that was very skillfully done because it sneaks in there that Babe Ruth's uh, record had actually already been broken and nobody has acknowledged it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a good job. It really captures it. So CJ and Zach meet in Chicago, uh, but... The, I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but the, the central part of the story is actually the Freedom Summer of 1964. So uh, tell us what you, I mean, first of all, remind people about the Freedom Summer of 1964, because not everyone may remember it, although they should. And then uh, give us a little bit of a sense of how this affects the lives of your characters in whatever way makes you feel comfortable. Okay. Well, yes, Freedom Summer is definitely the pivotal element of the fog machine. So what was it? It was originally known as the Mississippi Summer Project. It was a campaign to register African-American voters in the Deep South. And the focus was on Mississippi, where in 1962, only 6.7% of black citizens were registered, which was the lowest percentage in the country. 
black leaders in Mississippi invited white college students to come south because people cared so much about voting that they were willing to risk being beaten, fired from their jobs, shot and killed in order to register, and yet they were being systematically denied the right. And it was believed that with the white college students would come reporters and media attention. The volunteer college students, both white and black, were trained at a college in Oxford, Ohio, and called upon to register voters, teach in freedom schools, and help establish the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party as a challenger to the all-white Mississippi Democratic Party. The freedom schools were designed to address Mississippi's separate and unequal public education system and also to prepare students to carry on the fight after the summer volunteers would go back home. Freedom Summer was one of the last major interracial efforts of the civil rights movement in the 60s. Over a thousand college students came south and they were supported by clergy, attorneys, and medical personnel from the Medical Committee for Human Rights like Jones, Dr. Dad. And more than 60,000 of Mississippi's black residents risked their lives in various ways, including attending the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party organizational meetings and the Freedom Schools hosting volunteers and, and attempting to register. And Freedom Summer began just days in with the disappearance of the three civil rights workers, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney. When it was over, their bodies have had been found. Several hundred blacks had succeeded in registering to vote. Some 2,000 students had learned leadership lessons in the Freedom School, and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party challenged the Mississippi Democratic Party and achieved some concessions. And the national attention that was trained on Mississippi and the Deep South had helped gain passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and built support for the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which would be passed shortly after the march from Selma. So it was through a gradual process that Zach comes to volunteer for the Mississippi Summer Project. He's motivated by the moral and ethical teachings of Judaism. In particular, a sermon that he hears that compares the Hebrews' enslavement in Egypt and the Negroes' fight for freedom. Dr. King's call to action in Washington, uh, Zach also attends the March on Washington, also affects Zach deeply. But he's also compelled by knowing the girls of Apartment 10, especially CJ, and by his curiosity about Mississippi because it's where she grew up. He first gets involved with civil rights workers in Chicago who are protesting for better schools for blacks, and he learns about the Mississippi Summer Project from them. He's accepted, and he attends the week-long training in Ohio, and he gets assigned to Meridian, the town from which 
Cheney Goodman and Schwerner have disappeared. And he teaches at the Freedom School and uh, also travels to Atlantic City for the 1964 Democratic National Convention to support the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in their, ch in their challenge. Now, Joan comes to the Meridian Freedom School on Wednesdays with her dad, who's volunteered with the Medical Committee for Human Rights to staff a free clinic at the school and also to offer the benefit of his hospital privileges and ability to write prescriptions and that kind of thing to other um, MCHR volunteers who aren't licensed, licensed in Mississippi. And CJ is drawn back to Mississippi by some problems in her family. So once Zach, CJ, and Joan are in Mississippi, their lives collide. And each comes to question what freedom means and the price that they are willing to pay to have it. Um, yes, and... I'm I'm going to skip over one question uh, that I sent you and come back to it in just a second um, because this is really the heart of the novel. This is the the fog machine is really prejudice, right? I mean, it's it's a symbol of of life in Mississippi and of the, um, the prejudice. And so, uh, perhaps you could tell us about that, and then I will ask you about the research that you um, that you did for this, which is obviously substantial. Okay, so I like to talk about both prejudice and and the metaphor and and the title. I I wrote the fog machine to demonstrate my view that we are all prejudiced. So consider the three point of view characters and how they each respond to the times. John experiences white privilege without realizing it, and she accepts the status quo of the institutionalized racism of the time called Jim Crow. CJ also accepts the status quo. She has a fear and mistrust of people of other faiths, and she believes men have a right, she doesn't, to education and more challenging work. Zach considers himself colorblind, convinced that he can deal with differences between himself and CJ. He just assumes that she'll be able to do the same. And his naivete stands in the way of understanding and moving forward. I also wrote The Fog Machine to demonstrate the power of getting to know each other as individuals rather than stereotypes. And the stereotypes that we rely on in navigating our interactions are one element of the fog machine metaphor. Sometimes our easy views of others are just that, ideas that we rely on out of habit and ideas we fail, fail to challenge out of con, uh, convenience or just lacking information. And sometimes, though, our views of others are perpetrated on us with intent to divide us. So what, in general, happens to the main characters and others is that 
each in their own way, coming from their particular preconceived opinions or prejudice, gets to know someone different than themselves as an individual rather than a stereotype. Joan experiences life for black students at the Meridian Freedom School. In particular, she meets and observes Ben Cheney, who's the little brother of James Cheney. And Ben and Joan are the same age, and Joan has a little brother, which all helps her to relate. CJ experiences people of different faiths in Mississippi and Chicago, and she can compare and contrast the Barnes and the Powell families as Catholics and the Upton and Bernstein families as Jews. She finds the Grays, whose values are secular and humanist, particularly difficult to relate to. And Zach gets the opportunity to know CJ beyond his assumptions, however optimistic and positive they seem to be. Because suddenly he's upfront and personal with life under Jim Crow. He sees students come into the Freedom School with families who are frightened by being there, uh, who have gaps in their academic skills and, and little knowledge of their own history. And he sees all variety of, varieties of hope. Some students' hopes and dreams are very similar to those CJ has for her younger brother, Charlie, though not for herself, and some are, are larger. Though how much each character changes within the time span, time span of the story varies, most everyone is affected by the opportunity to view someone else in a different light. And the time span of the novel, 54 to 70, and its, its interleaved structure with characters coming in and out of each other's lives really gives more room to see that. Um, and I, I think you asked earlier about differences in, uh, in prejudice and discrimination that CJ experiences in Chicago as compared to Mississippi. And the contributors to both um, our individual prejudices and our ability to change, though, are basically the same although they may manifest differently in different locations or circumstances. And what I say is contributing is, is really a complex interaction of family, culture, society, politics, personality, religion, what we value, what we fear, and who we meet. And who we meet is especially important because it's the catalyst for change, and hopefully that change can be positive. So um, just as prejudice is the overarching theme of the book, the fog machine is the metaphor for that theme. It's, it's a compound metaphor relying on both the fog and the machine. It's not just fog which is confusing, mysterious, and obstructive. It's not simply a machine, which is rhythmic, controlled, and organized, but it's a fog machine. Poisonous, seductive, pervasive, deadly, distorting, and relentless. 
And if I can, I'd like to read the ending of the last scene in Chapter 1 where the fog machine makes a physical appearance. Uh, yes, please do, because some of us uh, who've lived most of our lives in the North may not know what a fog machine is, and this will explain it. Thank you. While her friends turned the rope, Joan jumped and jumped, not noticing the fog that crept up the street, overpowering the sweetness of the azaleas in Sally Ann's yard. Only when Cindy suddenly stopped looping the rope did Joan hear the old truck clanking down the street on its mosquito control mission. She turned to see the lumbering white pickup with the machine bolted to its bed. The nozzle burned red hot and belched thick clouds of insecticide. It's the fog machine, y'all. Come on, Cindy yelled. Like mice after a piper, the girls threw down the rope to trail the billowy stream. They chased it fading in and out of view whenever a slight breeze took the fog in unexpected directions. Joan ran with them, as if she were riding one of the thick white clouds that skidded across the sky, delighting in the feel of being inside. But then, CJ had to ruin it all. We're losing the light, Joan, she called. It's best we head on back now. Joan turned to go, but one of the girls bumped into her. What if it was Cindy? She couldn't just run on back, not after Cindy had already made her feel like a baby because CJ had tagged along. So she ran on with her friends until the truck rounded the corner and left their street. Only then did she emerge from the cloud, walking backwards toward home. Goodbye, Sally Ann called to Joan. It sure was fun using my new jump rope. Joan waved, and as she finally followed C.J. and Andy, she was glad for the falling darkness that hid the slight flush on her cheeks. Embarrassment was all it was, she told herself, though she knew it was more. Satisfaction suffused with shame over learning what to do to fit in with her friends. And as much as C.J. knew, that was something she would never understand. Yes, that absolutely beautifully summarizes the novel, I think. Um, thank you so much for reading that. Um, I would like to ask you now a little bit about the research. Um, not, not, I mean, I, you've mentioned that you interviewed people and that um, you obviously did a great deal of research for the novel. But what's fascinating is uh, when you are writing a novel, it's necessary to take all of that information, and I'm assuming for 1964 there's a fair amount of documentary information as well as people who are still living who remember that time. So how do you take all of that and uh, prune it to create a story that that will hang together uh, as a human experience? Well, for me, the hardest parts of telling a story involve deciding whose story it is and what to leave out in the telling. And during the years that I've researched and then worked on the fog machine, the body of information available online has really grown, especially, like you said, in connection with the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer. So universities such as the University of Southern Mississippi and Stanford and historical societies like the Wisconsin Historical Society have wonderful archives and the Civil Rights Movement veterans have expanded their website, and 
I was able to view photos donated to Queens College by Mark Levy, who was the principal of the 1964 Meridian Freedom School, which were especially helpful to me in visualizing what I was trying to write about. And working with Gail Falk also gave me access to additional documents in her personal collection. So the first things, though, that had to go in focusing this story were the women's rights and anti-Vietnam War movements, which were part of my initial research. And this was a fairly easy decision, because my original manuscript was far too long, and shortening the time span of the story was really a necessary first step. I suppose that having people who can call you out for an inaccurate portrayal of the times can be considered a disadvantage, but I went at this project with an intense commitment to historical authenticity. And what being historically authentic means to me is that events portrayed either actually happened in that time and place in that way, or they could have happened, or that no one who actually lived the events would likely take significant issue with such a presentation. So, I mean, I sweated a lot of rather low-level details. For example, whether the White Sox played at home on a certain weekend such that CJ could have attended the game if I wanted to present her as having gone. And... I consider myself highly fortunate to have been able to interview people who lived this history that I've written about, and I felt a sense of obligation to pass on stories when shared with me as gifts during interviews and to do so correctly. And, for example, Rabbi Robert Marks, founder of the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs, who marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and, and worked tirelessly for housing equality on Chicago's North Shore, shared a story from his attendance at the March on Washington that I was able to incorporate. I also very much did not want to fall into the trap of telling this story in the manner that Julian Bond once characterized Americans' paltry understanding of the movement's history. He said, Rosa sat down, Martin stood up, and then the white folks saw the light <clears throat> excuse me, and saved the day. So wanting to avoid this trap really helped me in a couple of ways. First, it helped me make decisions about what to include and what to admit. So... I included Emmett Till's story, for example, because although many people know it today, I didn't know it until I began my research. And also because Emmett's age at the time he was murdered, 14, and the year it happened, 1955, really made his story all the more powerful in illuminating CJ's drive to stay safe and keep her little brother Charlie safe. And... This wanting to avoid this trap also helped me in choosing my narrators and supporting characters. I, I also did not want to tell the stories of the clear heroes, whether black or white, the extraordinarily brave and daring or the well-known. 
Um, many of Mississippi's black citizens were legitimately too frightened to challenge the way things were under Jim Crow, and often they were more afraid of losing their jobs even than their lives. And CJ's sister, Metairie, and brother-in-law, George, are representative. And some of Mississippi's black citizens change slowly and painfully, just as my narrator CJ does. And then just as an example of choosing a supporting character, CJ's pastor at Hope Baptist in Poplar Springs, Brother James, feeds her drive to stay safe with this waiting on heaven ministerial posture of his. But there was a range of support for the movement among black ministers in Mississippi during the period of this story, including those who took great risks by allowing their churches to be used for civil rights meetings and finding people willing to host the Freedom Summer volunteers in their homes. Um, yes, and I think you really do capture that range of expression and experience um, and do it very well. Uh, I should uh, take this moment to explain that you see this book very much as a teaching tool. Um, what are you doing with it in that regard, and what kinds of success are you having? Well, so many, like like I didn't, don't know their history, and I missed out, and so I'm compelled by knowing our history and educating our children according to the principles of the 1964 Freedom Schools, which emphasized the school as an agent of social change, found it imperative that students know their own history, and relied on open-ended questions. and. That reliance on open-ended questions means not just letting our students question, but really purposefully arming them with the critical thinking skills that they need to be proactive citizens. And as measured by the Southern Poverty Law Center's State of Civil Rights Education in the U.S. reports from 2011 and 2014, we really have a long way to go. Failing states decreased between 2011 and 14 from 35 to 20, but 12 states are still making no mention of civil rights movement at all. And the the hard-won rights for voting and equal access that were gained during Freedom Summer have been taken away or threatened. This is an injustice that's so much harder to pull off when a society knows its history. There's also a recurring debate today over who gets to decide what history is taught and how. And the Freedom Schools face this question head-on, keeping it at the forefront of their curricular principles, especially the first two, that the school is an agent of social change and students must know their own history. And this debate is particularly raging around the teaching of advanced placement U.S. history in high schools with opponents claiming that AP U.S. history curriculum refutes American exceptionalism and condones civil disorder and disrespect for authority. It's gratifying, though, to see students standing up to express their desire for AP U.S. history in their schools. 
But so many young people, like I did in, in school, have little to no interest in studying history. And what sparked my interest was reading authentic historical fiction, in particular Howard Fast's Reconstruction-era novel Freedom Road, which made history come alive as a story and enabled me to imagine myself in someone else's place and consequently challenge my own assumptions. And I came to know the main character, Gideon Jackson, as an individual rather than a stereotype, and this to me is the power of story as a pathway to the heart. So much of my time now is spent engaging with schools about using stories to spark students' interest in history. And it's not just historical fiction, but poetry, oral history, memoir, song, and all forms of story in all of their glory. And some of the things that were going on in the 60s are still happening, but they've taken different shape and form, which makes them in some ways really harder to recognize and identify. Um, almost like the difference in subtlety from going from Jim Crow to um, the rules in Chicago for CJ. So in, in my interactions around the fog machine, what I really strive to do is create and reinforce awareness that not talking about things perpetuates the divides that we have going on and also that knowing our history makes it harder for us to have our rights taken away. So I'm very pleased by the way schools and social justice education organizations are getting behind the fog machine. And a few examples in Mississippi at Macomb High where social studies teacher Vicki Malone who was the first to encourage me about the need for more work that enable students to understand the world and history through relationships, the, the way that they learn best, she's added it to her resource list for her local culture, cultures class. In, here in Minnesota at Egan High, where the fog machine has been added to reading list for a course that explores contemporary American fiction while they study the civil rights women's and the anti-Vietnam War movements. And by Teaching Tolerance, which features the fog machine in the spring issue of its magazine in their review of the latest in culturally aware literature and resources for professional development and teachers. So just as during free and summer, Students are our foundation for change today, and the tenets of the Freedom Schools, including their use of story, I think advise us well on how we need to be teaching history going forward. I welcome student engagement, and I invite teachers, librarians, and others of influence in schools to contact me through my website about a school visit or with ideas for resources that would facilitate using the fog machine in their classroom. That's great. Um, I will give that address uh, um, as I'm closing out. And um, But what about you? Will you write another novel someday? 
I certainly hope so. I have several ideas, though I'm not working on any of them right now, because at this point with the fog machine, much of my attention is really on this advocacy for the use of stories to engage students in studying history and us all in dismantling the stereotypes that divide us. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Susan. Well, it's really been my pleasure, Carolyn. Your questions were wonderful, and I appreciate the opportunity to explore my novel in such a thoughtful, in-depth manner. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Susan Follett, the author of The Fog Machine. You can find out more about her and her books at www.susanfollett.com. That's www.susanfollett.com. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http colon slash slash newbooksnetwork.com, that's all one word, and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.